Hey, it's November 13, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa, and we cover the geek beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Cindy Matsuki from HTDC and John Shear from Ready Zone. And they're here to tell us about the upcoming Wetware Wednesday event. Finally, we'll learn about the storm-chasing program called Doppler on Wheels. Have your weather questions and suggestions ready to call in or tweet, but first, the headlines. Well, scientists using the PanSTARRS telescope atop Mauna Kea have spotted an unusual sight in our solar system, an asteroid with what can only be described as six tails. Although tails are usually attached to comets, this object is orbiting in our solar system asteroid belt. The six-tailed asteroid uh, turned up in the sky survey by PanSTARRS in August, and NASA trained its Hubble Space Telescope on the object in September. A NASA announcement on Monday that said the research team was dumbfounded by its discovery. In comparison images taken less than two weeks apart, astronomers also found the tail structures changed dramatically. The prevailing theory is that the asteroid is rotating so quickly that its surface dust is flying into space in periodic eruptions that make it look like a comet. Because the tail seem to have formed in bursts rather than simultaneously, the researchers don't think they were caused by a collision with another asteroid. Instead, the spectacle may be powered by radiation pressure from the sun. Well, the asteroid designated P2013 P5 has a radius of about 700 feet and has likely lost up to a thousand tons of its dust so far, with astronomers estimating that the dust ejection events began sometime in April. Lead uh, uh, investigator David Jewett said in a statement, It's hard to believe we're looking at an asteroid, but in astronomy, where you find one, you'll eventually find a whole bunch more. This is just an amazing object to us and almost certainly the first of many more to come. Now, this guy, David Jewett, uh, used to be with Institute for Astronomy and went over to uh, UCLA. Uh, and evidently, he's been uh, looking at some of these asteroids, and, and this is not the first one, but I think it's probably like maybe the first one that has so many tails. Right, and, and the images are spectacular. You see it, uh, if you go Googling uh, for the story, there it, it, it kind of looks almost like a sci-fi movie effect that mm-hmm. this uh, object has these tails kind of radiating out of it. I thought it was interesting that they're talking about it being caused by kind of the centrifugal force of the turning of it, because I would think that if dust was being ejected, it would kind of form more of a spiral galaxy mm-hmm. than these straight rays. But, you know, uh, that's, what's, that's what science is for, I guess. And then one of the things that they are sort of theorizing but nobody has really confirmed it yet is the possibility of it having been hit by something Mm -hmm. and that, you know, these asteroids have pockets of substance, could be gases or whatever, and as a result of the, the impact... Uh, these sort of inner inner materials are now kind of getting getting jogged loose. Right. Well, the, the, the key will be what they're trying to find is if the ejections are coming out of the equatorial plane, like from a specific plane of the object. And if, if that's the case, then it's clearly the spinning that's causing it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it might be something else. But I loved all of the write-ups about it. In fact, the NASA release itself called it a weird and freakish object. So if it gets the scientists that excited, we definitely want to cover that's it That's right. We love weird and freakish. <laughs> Efforts to preserve Hawaii's native species and their habitats have been extensive and are constantly expanding, but researchers out of the University of Hawaii at Hilo say that it may never be possible to return island forests to a pristine all-native state. Instead, they are testing a new strategy at the Keaukaha Military Reservation, creating hybrid ecosystems where invasive species are still cleared out but are replaced by both native and non-native plants. 
Well, the human impact on the lowland wet forests of Hawaii have been so great that even the, with constant weeding, it's simply not economical or practically possible to maintain an all-native ecosystem. Rebecca Ostertag, a UH biology professor, said in a statement, they are pretty much doomed. There is so little of them left, and what is left is highly, highly invaded by very invasive plant species. The whole system could disappear. The hybrid ecosystem approach will preserve native plants, but with the right mixture of non-native species will create a better functioning, self-sustaining forest that doesn't require heavy ongoing maintenance. Ostertag notes that the concept is both relatively new and controversial, but that by testing fundamental questions about how different plant communities function, the Hilo demonstration could prove helpful to endangered ecosystems around the world. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, is kind of neat about the uh, native plants, uh, and, you know, it's being made available through some of our garden shops. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, opportunity to sort of experiment in your own backyard with uh, some of the native plants. So I think it's sort of going on in in gardens at homes. And, you know, you can grow uh, native hibiscus, native koa. Uh, There's a a variety of different things like uh, huava. I mean, so the point is, I think in, in... personal gardens, you can start to experiment with sort of a hybrid environment. So your backyard is a hybrid ecosystem? Yeah, I got all kinds of stuff. <laughs> but putting putting this into practice in the actual um, forest, I think, is is I can see how it might be controversial for some, but certainly if it is an area where you're always having to go in to clear out the non-native ones, why not find something that can help keep that down, for example? Right, and, and sort of in the forest, uh, you know, the thing about a garden is that you can go back and, and do some weeding, but in, you know, in sort of... Uh, uh, untended areas, you got plants like guinea grass, as an example, which is very invasive. And, mm-hmm. and what spreads the guinea ga- grass is uh, birds. They go out and they eat the little seeds and they spread it all over. So you have to have native plants that can be very competitive against those kinds of uh, invasives. It's a very interesting project, though. And uh, they said that they have students, including high school students, that are involved. And you can get your hands on and, and very dirty um, working with this project. Well, next up, Ambry is a startup spun out of MIT and last week was named one of 15 companies participating in the 2014 cohort of the Hawaii Energy Accelerator, a grant-based program focused on energy startups. The company is developing an innovative liquid metal battery. And on Thursday, Ambry cut the ribbon on a new production facility in Massachusetts where it plans to build shipping container-sized batteries for its first two customers, one of which is a a first-win project here in Hawaii. Ambry was born in a lab at MIT, where then-graduate student David Bradwell showed his professor Donald Sadaway his first proof-of-concept liquid battery using magnesium, antimony, and a salt electrolyte. They formed a company around the idea in 2010. As an energy accelerator participant, Ambry's founders will spend several weeks in Hawaii for intensive, immersive workshops and mentoring. Six of the projects will eventually receive up to a million dollars toward a Hawaii demonstration project. The Hawaii market, along with other island nations throughout the Asia-Pacific, uh, is attractive to bulk energy storage firms due to the high cost of electricity and the challenges of maintaining a stable energy grid when uh, incorporating a variety of energy sources and systems. Energy Accelerator founder and senior manager Don Lippert said in a statement, as Hawaii transitions from an oil-based electricity system to one fueled by 70% clean energy, the Energy Accelerator is committed to funding the world's best innovations needed to get us there. Now, you know, when you think of a uh, sort of a liquid metal battery, you would think, oh, car battery, you know, you got liquid and you got metal in there. It must be something like a car battery. But this is much more complex. I mean, they're talking about molten salt. Right. That's sandwiched between a liquid metal. And what comes to mind, well, I don't know if this is what they're using, but, you know, what comes to mind is like Terminator, right? Liquid metal. 
I'm sure they're not building the Terminator. But I, I, I also like that they're deploying, for example, in standard shipping containers so they can be moved around, moved to where it's needed, especially when they're looking at the Asia-Pacific market and perhaps more rural areas. Uh, battery storage is one of the primary ways of keeping a grid stable, especially if you are experimenting with different sources. So uh, it's an interesting technology. It's an interesting project. And uh, we've been constantly covering the energy accelerator, so we'll keep an eye on these as well. Well, it turns out that uh, Bill Gates is a, as an investor in this company, and it turns out that uh, Bill Gates took a online course from the professor that uh, involved with this company ah. and was so impressed by, I guess, the course that he wanted to invest in, in the project. Interesting. The winners of the latest Breakthrough Innovation Challenge have been announced at the University of Hawaii's Pacific Asian Center for Entrepreneurship. Once again, biomimicry was the theme as teams developed ideas based on innovative solutions that Mother Nature already developed. A team of students from the UH College of Engineering and the School of Architecture took the top prize with their design for a wall that saves energy and harvests water, all inspired by the Namib beetle found in the deserts of southern Africa. Well, the team made of uh, made up of Monica Umeda and Francis Parks the third won one thousand dollars for Cloud Catcher, a wall that employs hydrophilic and hydrophobic pressures or processes to draw in water from outside air and also pa- pass clean, fresh water through to building occupants. Second prize went to three students from the College of Engineering who presented an organ assembly technology that operates at the cellular level. They propose a micro-bubble robot system that assembles living cells to form tissues and organs outside the body. And electrical engineering student John White took third for his design of a hydrofoil catamaran inspired by the basilisk lizard. The Breakthrough Innovation Challenge provides students and faculty the opportunity to publicize their innovations. Participants submitted two-minute YouTube videos to describe their innovation, its natural inspiration, and its potential market opportunities. A team of judges then picked finalists who were paired with a mentor to prepare their final presentations, which took place on Thursday. Now, this uh, Namib beetle, I think that's fascinating. If you watch any of the videos uh, on, on YouTube, they it's a combination of very water uh, sort of resistant material that is is sort of channeled to an area that they could, it could collect. So, you know, the beetle just sort of hangs out on the sand you know, in the desert, and as the wind blows, it's sort of the the water sort of rush, kind of moves off mm-hmm. off the surface, but then collects around their you know their legs and, and joints. Yeah, it's a, it's it's an interesting idea to try to apply it to, for example, business building construction. This is the third year I think for the Breakthrough Innovation Challenge. Last year when we covered the story, it was chameleon skin, mm-hmm. based of course on uh, how chameleon skin works. And before that, they did a flycopter, a nano satellite, all again sort of copying what Mother Nature has already come up with. I know. Great stuff. And in a brief uh, couple of more quick stories that we wanted to share with you, a pair of locally made apps popped up on our radar radar last week for Memorial Day. Daniel Zhang released a National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific iPhone app to locate graves of veterans buried at Punchbowl Cemetery. Zhang mapped more than 55,000 names and locations. On a lighter note, Jacob Pollock released his iOS game, Grenade Fishing. The material engineer at local R&D firm Oceanit created a game that uses a physics engine and the accelerometer to let you blast fish out of the water and snap them up as Abe the Bear. To check out these apps, you can search for NMCP Finder or Grenade Fishing on the Apple App Store. And if you received a flash flood warning alert on your smartphone over the weekend, turns out that the messages originated from FEMA and are called Wireless Emergency Alerts. The implementation of the WEAs varies by cell phone carrier. The national-wide um, carriers like Verizon, AT&T, and Sprint 
implemented a implemented it um, slightly differently. We spoke to senior scientist Gerard Fryer over at the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center, and he said that it it is a work in pro- progress. Uh, he's still working with FEMA to get tsunami warnings uh, included in the alerts. And of course, you can read more about these alerts at www.fema.gov slash wireless slash emergency slash, I'm sorry, dash alerts. I mean, I'll put it on our show notes. At bitemarscafe.org. Yeah. Now joining us here in the studio is Cindy Matsuki and John Shear, and they're going to be tell us, telling us about the upcoming Wetware Wednesday. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So Wetware Wednesday is something that uh, we've been kind of covering. Uh, I guess it happens every month, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a, an interesting uh, event. And every month, I mean, you got different organizations or schools uh, sort of featured. What's uh, on tap for uh, this coming this coming Wednesday? So next Wednesday, the twentieth, is our event, and we are. It's sponsored by the University of Hawaii College of Engineering, mm-hmm. and it's also sponsored by Socrata, who is trying to democratize the access to government data. And that coincides with the Hawaii Digital Government Summit, which I hear that you're going to be on hand. Well, yeah, you know, the uh, the um, Digital Summit is something that uh, is done every year, and it's primarily geared to government workers. Uh, and I guess if you have a uh, .gov email address, you can easily register. But for the public, it's kind of a um, – it's – you have to have uh, sort of a designated session that you can go to. And the, the session that we're putting together is an open data session. So the public is, is welcome to that. And I think it's perfect for software developers too, right? I mean, that's to make it accessible to the public. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in that's addition great. to uh, the sponsors, what is the theme for next week? The theme, well, we also have, we've partnered with Co-Founders Lab. We partner with them quarterly with their events. And John Shear is here to talk about the co-founders. I mean, we've had you on, John, before talking about co-founders. It turns out that on the same night, you guys are doing something. So what exactly are you guys uh, doing at Wetware? Sure. The Co-Founders Lab was actually founded about three years ago, and it's now in 30 cities throughout the country. Mm -hmm. And we just brought it to Honolulu in August, and the first event was with Wetware Wednesday. So now we're doing it as a quarterly event. It allows you to put a profile on the Co-Founders Lab site, uh, you can create that profile, and then they've just created an online app where, or a mobile app where you can go to the networking event, find other co-founders that are interested in either joining your company or maybe you might be interested in joining their company and get uh, a chance to belong to a startup. Now, one of the things about Co-Founders Lab, when, it, when I first heard about it, when it first came to Honolulu, was, again, it is kind of based on this, it's not dating, but it's kind of based on this profile uh, that you fill out online, and it matches you with appropriate or perhaps uh, complementary partners to 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 get your idea off the ground. And, John, I mean, you, we did mention you're with a uh, company that I'd never heard of. Where did Where did that come from? Sure. And again, my, my company just launched uh, last month. It's ReadyZone HQ. Um, I was able to kind of put the idea in play through the Founder Institute program that just finished up last week. And I was able to find a lot of resources and, and match up with uh, other co-founders through these type of events like the Co-Founders Lab. It's one of the hardest things about getting a startup off the ground is finding good co-founders and finding other people that want to join you for this journey that's really challenging. Mm-hmm. And so these type of networking events that are uh, in Hawaii now are fantastic to be, make sure that the community comes together, finds out what people are working on, and get to help each other out. So at the Wetware, I know that there's a combination of uh, some presentations. So let's say Socrata is going to do something. I mean, Socrata is a company that does 
data.honolulu.gov and data.hawaii.gov. So they'll talk about their their sort of uh, open data portal. Uh, and then, you know, there will probably be some uh, sort of socializing. Most of the people that attend this is, are, are, are tech folks. So how does the, how does the co-founder lab part of it sort of integrate into the, the sort of the Wetware Wednesday? Sure. I, I think one of the challenges that the software developers in particular find is that everybody kind of says that they need a tech uh, co-founder, mm-hmm. and then they get attacked. You know, okay. honestly, the, you get 30 or 40 people asking them, hey, can you join my company? And so the co-founders lab concept is you're being very open about what you're looking for by creating a profile ahead of time. It allows people the opportunity to see what's the stage that you're at. And is it just an idea? Have you actually built a prototype? Are you looking to scale? And then people can come find you. And mm-hmm. so it really takes the a lot of the guesswork out of wandering around the room trying to figure out what somebody's working on to really see, oh, this is a person I might want to talk to. This is the kind of thing that they're working on. That's the, the nice thing I like about it. Well, you know, five or six years ago, uh, before all of these wonderful meetup groups were happening, I was helping a friend uh, with a group called Manoa Geeks. And it was also kind of just an open sort of developer slash programmer slash entrepreneur group. And at that point, it was like, okay, you wear a red sticker on your on your ID, if you're a developer, a blue sticker if you're a designer, or you know, if you're just a, if you're just here to learn the education side. So this sounds like a good way to kind of, like you said, it. What you described reminds me of sort of Startup Weekend, where you come together and you try to build a team on the spot. But this is certainly more with a, a long view. Um, Cindy, for Wetware Wednesday, it is for kind of helping these connections happen. Uh, I would imagine in the more than a year or longer that Wetware Wednesday has been around, you've seen some good collaborations and perhaps even actual startups come out of this event? I think so. I think people have met at the event. It's a good, I've heard people say that they come every month because it's a good time to catch up and see what's going on. Um, and it's been going on for over two years now. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, it's a great event. We get about 60 to 80 people. Um, and there is food. I mean, <laughs> if, yeah, if we basically food. have to appeal to the base interests <laughs> of a nerd like or a tech person, food is a good thing. That's why so. it's so popular. <laughs> now, and it's John, free. Is there something or some place that people need to go to to kind of prepare to, you know, put their sort of profile on, you know, the site so that, you know, when they go there, they can sort of uh, get a head start? That's exactly what we want them to do. We want them to go to cofounderslab.com. We will have the low-tech version of the stickers and, you know, but Mm -hmm. the idea is get ahead of time, put your profile up there, and and find someone that, that you might be interested in talking to. I actually found a designer. Uh, by going to the last What Were Wednesday that helped build my site. It was fantastic. And uh, Cindy, where can someone go to find out specifically about registering for What Were Wednesday? You can go to our website at htdc.org slash www for What Were Wednesday. Oh, sounds good. (laughs) Thanks, Cindy and uh, John, for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Michael Bell and Wen Chao Li to tell us about storm chasing with Doppler on wheels. With the advances in weather prediction, what can Doppler on wheels tell us about storms? We'd, of course, love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation. So please give us a call at 941-3689 or toll free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're monitoring Twitter live. You can reach us at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Indian music and Japanese traditional music have more in common than you might expect. A fascination with unusual tonality and complex rhythms that comes together in a unique trio. The instruments are tabla, shamisen, and shakuhachi, and we'll find out how they all fit together tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation.
On November 23rd, it's the Saloon Pilots bringing their bluegrass stylings to everything from traditional mountain tunes to the Grateful Dead. This special concert takes place in HPR's Atherton Studio November 23rd at 7.30. Tickets at 955-8821 during business hours or online at hprtickets.org. This purple clover, Queen Anne's lace, crimson hair across your face. You could make me cry if you don't know. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Michael Bell and Wen Chao Lee. Michael is a assistant professor over at SOAS and also the principal investigator of the Hawaiian Educational Radar Opportunity, or HERO. Meanwhile, Wen Chao is a senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. He's visiting to participate in the HERO project and with Doppler on Wheel. And how is Doppler radar applied to storm clouds? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Michael and Wen Chao, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks for having us here. So let's start with, uh, you know, HERO, and, and it stands for the Hawaiian Educational Radar Opportunity. And I, I, did, uh, I did do a search on that, and... It came up with your short brief on it, but I wanted to find out. I actually kind of was looking for what your proposal was that actually ultimately got the Doppler on wheels over here. But maybe since we have you here, why don't you just tell us what did you what did you pitch to it, uh, the NSF? Yeah, well, so the National Science Foundation sponsors what they call educational deployments. So uh, any type of advanced weather technology, for example, the Doppler on wheels or um, weather balloon, radio sound launching systems, um, many different types of technology that are maybe a little too complicated for uh, single individual uh, individual universities to use. We can request their community resource, and um, as part of this educational deployment, uh, we got the radar out here for three weeks as part of my class on radar meteorology. So mm-hmm. it was great that the National Science Foundation can support the ability for students to learn more about radar and how to study the weather with it. Mm-hmm. So, um, Dr. Lee, you, I know you are here primarily for this program, but we got you just before you you left. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this program? Because it is a national program, this Doppler on Wheels, and actually it sounds like it might be might have been a logistical challenge to include and incorporate Hawaii into that program. So can you tell us a little bit about it in general and, and how it uh, works on the mainland? Okay, this Doppler on wheel radar um, is a basically a radar on a truck, and it's been used to chase uh, tornadoes and uh, hurricanes and a variety of uh, uh, weather phenomena uh, in the mainland. Also, it has been shipped to Europe and mm. uh, a few other countries to do weather studies. Um, so, it it is a challenge to come to. Uh, Hawaii, uh, because this is, uh, in terms of educational requests, this, this is the first time that uh, that's been uh, deployed uh, away from the mainland of U.S. Ah, mm-hmm. okay. Was this, uh, um, was this ever requested before? Uh, you know, I mean, Doppler on Wheels has been probably around for a little while. Was this the first time it was requested? Yes, it's the first time it's requested for Hawaii. So they've done educational deployments in uh, several other universities on the mainland. Mm-hmm. But um, this is the first time we had to get a little bit of a special request uh, because of some of the additional cost to get the radar here. It had to come over on a ship and 
Um, but uh, we're grateful that, that they could do that for us. And uh, it's been a wonderful project so far. We actually just ended the project today. Um, we've been collecting just outstanding data for the past three weeks. Well, uh-huh. I definitely want to hear more about that science and what uh, you were able to observe. Um, Dr. Lee, as you mentioned, this was the first educational request from Hawaii, but the the, the trailer has, for exa- as you said, traveled to do science in other places. Um, now, when I hear Storm Chaser, I hear, I think of, you know, uh, TV documentaries or faux documentaries where it kind of looks like Knight Rider slash uh, Mad Max machines that are covered with steel and low to the ground. But uh, the Doppler and Wheels is a, is a large trailer. I mean, can you tell us kind of more about the, the structure that it takes and what is in that trailer? Okay, the, the trailer, uh, it, it, it's a more like a big, bigger than a full-size truck. Mm-hmm. And so the, the radar is mounted on the, uh, the tail part, end part of, of the truck. And you can think of the passenger side of a full-size truck has been sort of a, uh, uh, enlarged into more of a mobile lab. And it has computers in there. Uh, there uh, I lost count of it. Probably <laughs> five or six different computers mm-hmm. control different parts of the radar and also display the data, uh, data recording. Uh, um, a major part of the, of the DAO is it, it's a communication uh, capability. So it has an antenna that can be raised probably about 10, 10 meter uh, high. And um, uh, it in the field, it can communicate with its fellow uh, uh, researchers on, on other Doppler wheel. There are a total of three Doppler wheel, and ah. there are maybe five or six different uh, mobile radars mm-hmm. available for uh, for for the uh, storm chasing. So this unit uh, uh, often serve as the uh, control center in a field. So the scientists, lead scientists, can sit in their truck, look at their data, and um, uh, communicate with other uh, units so they can work together mm-hmm. to to get the best data. So have you have you gone on any uh, let's say field trips where you're maybe coming very close to a, a passing tornado and Doppler on wheels is is there to sort of monitor the uh, you know the conditions of the weather? Yes, I, I participated in a, a project called Vortex Two mm-hmm. in 2010, which uh, uh, I follow uh, one of the DAOs. Um, Travel in the Midwest, uh, I, I log about uh, seventeen thousand miles in forty six days. Ooh. Okay. That's a lot. Yes. And then, uh, how was that experience? I mean, we also see some of the video that people have of uh, of their storm trace, uh, storm chasing uh, kind of uh, experiences, and you know they're <laughs> they're huddled in this low, you know, sort of a, a low lying uh, vehicle in the in the uh, Dow. I would think that it'd be pretty shaking, shaking around. I mean that. The radar that's on the um, uh, the back of the truck. I mean, it's a it's a nice sized dish. I mean, doesn't that kind of pick up the wind and <laughs> <laughs> maybe lift the back of the truck up? Uh, basically, the, the the Dow. If you look at the truck, it's other than these four wheels, mm-hmm. it has four supporting structure. So once it find a site which is suitable for deployment it will stop and, and start to level itself. So mm-hmm. the truck is actually get lifted up, above the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, because this DAO is specifically designed to chase severe storms, so it can handle uh, a reasonable uh, uh, inten- uh, strength of, mm-hmm. the, of the wind without getting blown away. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, uh, when a tornado, if, if the DAO sends a tornado is coming, uh, 
the first thing they do is is move to a safety right. uh, a safe spot. Oh, so you're spot. not you're not like the other storm so chasers that you know want to go into the eye of the storm. Uh, th- that's a different team. Yeah, <laughs> okay. so not as much screaming and yelling as there might have been uh, versus on television. We're talking to Michael Bell, a principal investigator and prof- assistant professor at SOAST, as well as Dr. Wen Chao Lee from the National Center for Atmospheric Research about Doppler on wheels and storm chasing and um, the kinds of data that we can get with modern technology. And we know there are a lot of weather nerds out there. If you've got a question, these are the folks who can answer it at nine four one three six eight nine or from the neighbor islands eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. We're also, of course, listening on Twitter. Now, Michael, uh, while Doppler on Wheels was here, I mean, we mentioned during the news we had some FEMA alerts about uh, flash flood warnings and everything. So in addition to going around and and meeting with students, which we can talk about, uh, it sounds like that this was a good data collecting uh, excursion for the Doppler on Wheels as well. Yeah, that's correct. So actually on Saturday night, we went and did a a 24-hour mission uh, when we had that heavy rain this weekend. So we had three different teams uh, going out. All the different students uh, rotated through. We started at uh, 5 p.m., and uh, we had a new crew come in uh, in the middle of the night, and uh, we collected data all night. And our uh, our phones actually went off while we were out there <laughs> collecting the data as well. So that was uh, pretty exciting. So we never like to see flash floods, but we were glad to be able to be on the scene and collecting the data at the time. So, um, so that was pretty exciting. And um, it, it was a very wet weekend, and uh, I think some of the data that we collected is some of the first of its kind because these radars don't really visit uh, Hawaii and see the type of tropical rain that we have that's it's different than some of the rain that you see on the mainland mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. so uh, did you did you find a place in particular that was uh, most conducive to doing radar studies for this past weekend um, well, this past weekend, we were over uh, near Schofield Barracks in Wahiwa area. Mm-hmm. So that was a really great spot for looking at the convection on the uh, Waianae, so looking at uh, heavy rain developing there and also on the Koalau. So we kind of, uh, in the during the project, spent most of our time on the windward side at a several different spots and really looking at the orographic precipitation there, things developing on the mountains um, and, the, and the trade wind showers coming in. So that was kind of our primary base of operations. But we did go to the Central Valley a few times, especially when we had thunderstorms storms that developed in the mm. interior. So, Now, Dr. Lee, um, I would imagine that uh, perhaps some of your colleagues heard, that heard that you were going to take Doppler on wheels to Hawaii said, well, how hard can that possibly be? How interesting can the weather in Hawaii be? Isn't it perfect all the time? Um, and certainly when you're talking about chasing tornadoes and severe storms on the mainland, a lot of people don't imagine that there's anything like that here. But from your experience and from your time here, were there any specific weather conditions that you found specifically fascinating from a scientific point of view? Yes, uh, certainly Hawaii uh, uh, do, does not have uh, the, the the severe weather as in the mainland, but Hawaii, uh, uh, because it is a uh, topography, uh, it's uh, uh, specifically uh, prone for. Uh, Michael just mentioned the trade wind, the on the windward side uh, uh, convection that that may produce uh, heavy rainfall. And during my three weeks visit here, I heard. Uh, uh, several uh, rare thunder uh, occurred in, in Hawaii and, and the, f- uh, the flooding warning. So the heavy heavy rain event can actually happen in, in Hawaii and uh, in Oahu uh, uh, when, when the uh, most densely populated uh, the area. So this is the type of weather that I think it's uh, uh, it's of interest of, uh, of the local local people and also have some scientific value. Because we this hasn't been observed before. Mm-hmm. You know, when I uh, when I first saw Doppler on wheels, it was at the uh, SOAS uh, open house, 
And uh, I think it was exciting because that weekend there was some prediction of some thunder storms that were rolling in. And uh, and I think you, you were planning to kind of go out onto the North Shore and, and maybe monitor some of that. And I'm kind of curious, uh, what were some of the differences between, you know, monitoring thunderstorm clouds versus some of the stuff that happened over this past weekend, which are more like trade showers? I mean, are there any kind of differences in terms of, you know, your the radar signature? Yeah, I'd say the biggest difference is just the vertical depth of the clouds. So with the thunderstorms, um, you have a, a level of instability that once you start to lift the cloud, the, uh, the clouds up, you can get a much deeper convection. And so that actually takes the, um, the, the rain above the freezing level. And so actually you can see that on the radar. So we can get a very interesting signatures in the ice aloft that we, weren't, we don't normally see. So most of the time our more shallower trade wind showers stay below the freezing level and just stay warm rain. Mm-hmm. But so the fact that we were able to see some very interesting ice processes occurring in the upper part of the atmosphere was a really unique difference between those other types of uh, rain. Now, Dr. Lee, I mean, I, I, I apologize. I'm not as nerdy as I'd like to be. So I might ask a 101 level question here, but I, I certainly like to think I'm interested in the weather. I watch weather forecasting. We go to the websites and there's a lot of, for example, weather imagery taken by satellite and then a lot of images that are taken by Doppler. And I, I've never fully understood what the specific approaches were uh, for why those different technologies are used at the same time and, and why, for example, Doppler is something that is in heavy, heavy use. Uh, what does Do- Doppler offer that a space uh, a satellite doesn't give you? Well, Doppler is a measurement uh, uh, technique which can also be applied to the satellite mm. uh, observation. Uh, for example, the NASA TRIM uh, radar uh, actually uh, has a similar wavelength as, as the Dow, but it's uh, operating on, on space and can also measure the Doppler. Uh, a Doppler effect is it, uh, it, a measure of the phase difference uh, of the particle relative motion between the sensor and the object. So uh, a simple analogy is if you uh, wait on a railroad track and when the train is coming toward you, you, the, the pitch is, is higher than usual, and when the train moving away from past you, then you hear the pitch, is, is, the frequency is lower. So that's a simple explanation of the Doppler effect. So we use that, uh, that, that, that uh, um, uh, a theory and the technology to measure, uh, use the radar to measure the, the particle, which is the rain, primary in Hawaii, uh, the motion of the rain particle toward and away from, from the radar. So that that's basically what we're doing using the Doppler uh, effect. So so you're you're not really looking at um, sort of the the reflection or the scatter as a result of the the radar. You're looking at just the sort of the motion away or uh, toward relative to the sensor. No, there are different type of measurements that the radar can do depends on uh, its capability. So the the most simple radar. Uh, Measure just transmit radio uh, electromagnetic wave into the space and and receive the return intensity. So that's what we call the reflectivity, uh, where, where you can uh, look at uh, hear it from the uh, weather report on TV. And so that's the intensity of the rain. So if you add another capability, which is Doppler to the radar, then you can measure the phase difference. Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. you can measure the velocity. And a more complicated radar, you can add a dew polarization capability to it. Then you can measure the shape, 
and, and, and size of, of the raindrops. Very good. We're talking to Michael Bell, a assist, assistant professor at SOAST and the principal investigator of the HERO project, as well as Dr. Wen Chow Lee from the National Center for Atmospheric Research and, of course, the Doppler on Wheels program. If you've got a question or a thought about uh, Hawaii weather and how technology can help or perhaps impair your ability to prepare for your day, you can give us a call here at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And we're also watching on Twitter. Now, Michael, uh, again, um, when I think of radar, I think of, well, I guess I think of police cars for one thing. But, you know, the technology seems pretty straightforward. But uh, what is the difference? Um, Why specifically radar? And uh, uh, I think it it was a question that Bert had mentioned in an earlier conversation. You know, raindrops are small and uh, your wavelengths are pretty broad. So why why does it work the way it does it? You know, why does it pick up the things that we see when it's visualized, for example, on television? Right. Well, so part of the reason that we use uh, radio waves is a similar to the reason that you guys use them is that the radio wave can pass through the atmosphere very easily. And so, but when it encounters a particle such as a raindrop or a mountain, um, then some of that energy is scattered back. And when the region that we like to be in is what we call Rayleigh scattering. So that's where the size of the particle is relatively small compared to the wavelength. So we actually use a three centimeter wavelength. Um, it's called X-band. It's a, sort of the radar jargon for it. And um, so the raindrops are, are relatively small relative to that wavelength. Mm-hmm. But it's actually the same phenomena that gives, makes the sky blue. So uh, atmospheric particles, gaseous particles um, also do Rayleigh scattering off of sunlight. So um, we're using that same basic principle to uh, get that energy to come back to the radar. And then the amount of energy that comes back tells us how hard it's raining. And then that Doppler shift that uh, Wen Chow mentioned tells us how fast the wind is blowing. And then that extra capability of dual polarization can help us sort out the size and shape and whether it's ice or rain or other types of birds, um, other <laughs> types of things. <laughs> so you're, um, you know, the, the class that you brought the uh, Dao uh, over for is part of uh, the School of Ocean, Earth, Science uh, and Technology. Uh, and you have uh, sort of graduate and undergraduate students that are participating in, in going out on the field. What are, they, what are you tasking them to do? Well, actually, so the class that I'm teaching is a graduate-level class called Radar Meteorology, and I had 12 students enrolled in that course. And so in the first part of the course, um, they learned all the basic principles of radar. And then um, I really handed the radar over to them and let them uh, decide what they want to do. And and, uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to get to play with this uh, really nice toy uh, (laughs) and uh, go out and collect the data. So at first, they got trained on how to use the radar, and then um, they made the decisions on what to scan and things like that. Um, the undergraduates uh, actually were really instrumental in launching weather balloons. So we had them come out, and uh, we launched weather balloons every time we took the radar out, and uh, and that was a really fun experience for I, them. I want to I hear about what it is that they, they, they you know, they launched the weather balloon. They must have had something that they had go up with the weather balloon. I want to hear a little bit more about the, what, what they sent up with it. So we're going to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Michael Bell and Wen Chao Li about storm chasing with Doppler on wheels. What schools were visited? What did high school students think about the experience? We'd, of course, love to hear from you whether or not you saw the Doppler on wheels. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689, toll-free from the neighbor islands. You are listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Arlington National Cemetery carries markers of some of the most important events in the nation's history. 
the Kennedy grave, but also the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And just across the way from there is the marker for the Challenger explosion. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason, Thursdays at 6.30 on Hawaii Public Radio. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm David Bedrick, the author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to bring love and soul back into psychology. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Michael Bell of SOAST and Dr. Wen Chow Lee with the Doppler on Wheels program about the Hawaii Educational Radar Opportunity. And, of course, uh, right before the break, we were talking about the weather balloons. But if you have a comment or question or if you're a student interested in weather and storm tracking, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Now, Michael, what was uh, some of the uh, experiments that you had your students uh, launch with the uh, weather balloon? Well, we attach on those what we call a radio sonde, so it actually uses radio waves as well to communicate. Um, it records the pressure, the temperature, and the relative humidity, and also the GPS position and sends that back over over uh, radio waves. And we can track the balloon um, using that GPS signal and the radio signal um, to get the winds. So as the balloon moves, it, it basically follows the wind. So that enables us to get a full vertical profile of uh, basically the atmospheric conditions uh, all the way up to we had, uh, the highest balloon that we had went to 27 kilometers, so up to 17 millibars are essentially the top of the near the top of the atmosphere, mm-hmm. um, and so having that uh, thermodynamic data to go with the the radar uh, gives us a, an extra piece of information to say why, for example, the the rain is heavier on a particular day, or um, you know, clear fair skies on a different day. So that was a sort of a nice complementary piece of data. Now, now you brought up millibars, and that that triggered something in my mind that I need to have explained to me, <laughs> because I call you know I always hear about low pressure, high pressure, and you talk about millibars, and usually you would think that uh, high pressure, where there's more pressure being applied to you know, let's say through this column of air. That, that would be reflective of a uh, stormy condition because, you know, it's high humidity and the clouds are sitting on you. But it's actually the opposite, right? Yeah, that's correct. So in the high-pressure scenario, it's actually more air pushing down. Um, the air is actually sinking generally. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that leads to clear skies. And in the reverse situation where you have low pressure, the air is coming in. So the, the air is always moving from high pressure to low pressure. And as that air converges into the low pressure area, it actually rises. And then as it rises, it cools and condenses. And then that's why we get uh, rain. So um, typically when we're actually uh, frequently here in Hawaii, we're under large scale high pressure conditions with the light trade showers. But mm-hmm. every once in a while, like this weekend, we had a, a nice low-pressure system come in that leads to widespread rain and lifting of the air around us. Now, um, Bert and I just recently went through our Skywarn training, which is uh, basically a National Weather Service program for volunteer weather spotters. And uh, I enjoyed the presentation. It talked about cloud formation, high and low-pressure systems, um, but certainly I think I need to refresh that uh, training already. Uh, Dr. Lee, uh, as, as Michael mentioned, we pretty much have high pressure, which keeps weather relatively stable. But you mentioned that the topography is a is a key player in the weather in Hawaii. I was wondering if uh, be- before coming out here, did you have any 
preconceptions about what uh, the topography topography would do? Um, and did you learn anything new when you were out here on the ground with Doppler on Wheels? Actually, I was here uh, 1990. Mm. Um, uh, there, there were two Doppler radars and an aircraft deployed to the Big Island of Hawaii. So we stationed at uh, near Hilo for two months to study the what we call Hawaiian rim band, uh, because the, the, this topography and and the and the trade wind interaction is unique in in the uh, Hawaiian uh, area. So when when the trade wind uh, primary from the east or northeast direction mm-hmm. hit the, uh, the topography of, of Hawaii Islands. It it provide a, a mechanism for the for the air to rise, so mm-hmm. it produce a uh, windward a shower, and uh, uh, basically the climatology in in this area is you have uh, it it the, the preferred uh, uh, timing for the shower is early morning, uh, and of course it varies with different islands because the topography is, is somewhat different. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I was kind of curious about, too, is that now, now you have Doppler on wheels, you have your graduate students, you unleash them with all this technology. Uh, what did they come up with in terms of things that they wanted to study, and, and, and how was that experience? It was really great. I, at the beginning of the project, they were, you know, a little tentative. I think they didn't want to break anything, and by the end, they were, you know, ready to go and uh, scanning everything. So uh, we have two different major scan modes that we were running. One we call the PPI, the Plan Position Indicator, and that's the one that you typically think of, you know, the the classic uh, line going around the scope and, and beeping. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one is what we call RHI, or Range Height Indicator, which is a vertical slice through the atmosphere, and that's something that's not normally done with um, operation radars, but that allows us to to basically slice and dice these uh, storms up in a different way. And so they were doing combinations of different types of scans, targeting different features um, with the radar. So if they would see a particular cloud or thunderstorm that looked really interesting, they could basically focus the radar on that and and get uh, really detailed measurements. So another thing that we were able to do was actually send a lot of this data back to the Weather Service. You mentioned the Skywarn. Um, we sent the, the weather balloon data back to the Weather Service in real time, and, uh, and they were also helping the students with forecasting. So we had a really nice synergy between the students and the Weather Service to help learn more about uh, how to forecast Hawaiian weather. Now, Michael, uh, the SOEST event, one of the primary points of it was outreach and specifically to high school students. And when now that we're talking about uh, weather and students, it reminds me, uh, Justin Fujioka is a weather person for KITV, and I knew him back when he was a student at Kalani High School. He knew in high school that he wanted to be a weather forecaster, and specifically on television. So in terms of somebody who picks their path early and follows that dream, um, he definitely comes to mind. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of that high school outreach? Certainly they're not doing the level of science that perhaps a graduate student is doing, but do you see uh, a specific interest or even a career pathway um, when you work with local high school school students with this program? Oh, definitely. I think, uh, you know, having this, as Wen Chow mentioned earlier, I mean, the radar is quite a spectacle. And I know Bert Bert came by and saw it at the open house. And I mean, being able to go and see that and inside the truck during the open house, we actually had about 2,300 students come to visit the uh, radar um, on, actually, excuse me, 5,600 students come on Friday and 2,300 students come on Saturday, including teachers and, and families. And uh, for th- to have that many people come and check out the radar and inside the truck, we 
we were playing back uh, tornado data and hurricane data so they could see that. And I think we got a tremendous feedback about just people getting jazzed about the weather and wanting to study it. And, uh, you know, to, to have that opportunity is really wonderful. You know, I think, uh, I think the technology has gotten to the point where you can tell a lot more about conditions that uh, are that we are experiencing with you know with the various things like uh, a Doppler on wheels and and you know I was uh, over at the uh, tsunami uh, warning center and and of course they're monitoring things like uh, earthquakes and there's all kinds of sensors now that can tell us uh, what's happening you know in terms of the uh, earth I, I would think that um, uh, when students are now being able to leverage or you know understand the technology and 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 come to you know an event like the SOAS open house and see it actually all brought together uh you know your graduate students are they are they looking at careers in in sort of meteorology or or what are they planning to do with their let's say graduate degree there's a com- uh, many different career paths for meteorologists actually so you know one of the traditional career paths is is through the national weather service so going and learning how to forecast and doing that uh, you know all over the world um, the Hawaiian office in particular has a huge area of responsibility for uh, many of the different islands um, and, and doing hurricane uh, forecasting as well. Um, there's also uh, academia like myself, so we can go and continue to teach and do research and try and uh, improve our ability to forecast, uh, improve the numerical weather models. And uh, even more recently, I think there's a lot of private meteorology opportunities, marine forecasting, um, wind energy, uh, and other types of renewable energy. They need forecasters to say, you know, how, how, how much is the sun going to shine today? How much is the wind going to blow? And uh, so we need people to make those type of forecasts. Mm. Well, speaking of private, I mean, we just spoke with John Shear before your segment, and his, his new business is Disaster Preparedness. His business card, I just noticed, has a big storm cloud on it. So there are certainly opportunities there. Um, Dr. Lee, you know, uh, Doppler radar, it, it's so widely used. I remember it kind of even being used as a buzzword in, in TV weather, but it's certainly an established technology. And I think that it has a history going back to like the 50s when the Weather Service just got surplus Navy Doppler radars to use. Um, but because you work at the at the national level, I did want to ask you as a fellow nerd, what is what is the next generation? I mean, how is it evolving? Or is there is there something on the horizon that you can't wait to see develop that would vastly improve our ability to observe and predict weather conditions? Yes, uh, this is a very good question. Um, the The current technology uh, of a Doppler radar, uh, I, I believe you visit the Doppler on wheel, is use a parabolic dish as a, as the antenna. So the, the way we sample the atmosphere is uh, put that dish on a, on, on a pedestal and, and start to rotate it and change the elevation angle uh, and slowly sample the three-dimensional uh, volume of the atmosphere. Um, for severe weather and even for the uh, rain showers in Hawaii, we um, uh, let me back off a little bit. So typically, for to sample a, a volume of, of storm, uh, it will take maybe from 6 to 10 minutes uh, in order to complete the, the what we call volume scan. That's how the next ray radar also works. Uh, uh, operate. However, in this type of uh, 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 delta T uh, time difference, uh, a lot of a severe weather, uh, you, you just cannot capture it. It's a life cycle. And this morning when we were on the windward side of, uh, of Oahu, uh, some of the clouds uh, just form and disappear in a couple minutes. Mm-hmm. So, that, so the next generation of the, of the uh, radar technology is what we call uh, We'll use uh, a, a new technology called a phase array radar, which is more of an active 
uh, element sensing technology. Mm. So uh, it it doesn't really use the mechanical scanning to sample the atmosphere, but use the electronic scanning. So you can change the beam direction almost instantaneously and be able to uh, sample the, the atmosphere in a much, much shorter time frame. Now, is this something that's theoretical or it's already in practice in specialized facilities? I mean, how far off is it where instead of waiting 10 minutes to build that picture, we can have kind of basically an instant capture of a three-dimensional weather condition? Uh, the technology itself is not uh, it's not new. Mm-hmm. Uh, military has used that technology ah. for, for for quite a while. For meteorological application, uh, there there has been some uh, uh, prototype uh, being built at different level of complexity. Uh, one example is uh, is a project called CASA, which built a a three cent uh, X band uh, radar, which is about uh, uh, I'll say half a meter by half a meter uh, a size and. Uh, it's it's less uh, very low cost radar, and it can put on the side of a building or the uh, or the cell phone towers, and to sample the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And the the way the reason they designed it is trying to cover the tornado uh, severe weather area where the the typical next red uh, uh, are separate about two hundred fifty kilometers. So they try to fill in the the, the mm-hmm. area with this low cost radar. Mm-hmm. Now I'm curious. Uh, you know, I, I thought the uh, the Doppler on wheels was a pretty impressive blue truck that uh, we were able to get uh, over here. Why only three weeks? I mean, I'm sure Michael, you wanted it to be longer than that. I mean, is there is it like scheduled for another deployment, like right after you get back to the mainland? Yes, it's actually headed. Uh, once it goes on the ship, it's headed over to uh, upstate New York. So they're going to do a project up there called Owls. I believe it's Ontario um, Winter. Uh, I should remember my acronyms, but it's uh, <laughs> Winter Storms Project. They're going to be looking at lake effect snow. So mm-hmm. um, they're mm-hmm. going to go from Hawaii up to the winter storms very quickly. Wow. So quite a transition. But, uh, the, yeah, the radar is uh, basically booked all year round because it, it's uh, applicable to so many different types of conditions. So do tornado chasing in the spring, maybe hurricanes a little later, and then you know come to Hawaii and then off to the winter storms. <laughs> so, Michael, I mean, we've benefited by having Doppler on wheels here for three weeks, but certainly weather forecasting and observation has to happen even after after it's gone. Um, I'm kind of curious with the question of, like, what are you looking forward to? Uh, at UH, at SOAS, there's constant research on the uh, on atmospheric conditions and weather forecasting. What, perhaps with a local slant, is on the radar, so to speak, for SOAS in terms of uh, improving in research in this area? Well, we've got a, a great data set that we've just collected here, and I think some of the observations we've made are, are really uh, unique. Um, they've, they've never been seen before. And so uh, first thing is to, to dive into what we just collected and really uh, try and understand that. Um, and then uh, we'd like to bring the Doppler on wheels back again, um, in, in, uh, maybe for a more detailed research project. Um, Another really exciting thing, though, is that uh, the NEXRAD radars, uh, which are operational radars, so we have four of them here in Hawaii, they were all recently upgraded to that dual polarization technology we were just talking about. So that's actually just happened within the past few months. So um, the the fact that we're getting this new type of technology um, now uh, 24-7 from our operational radars is is really exciting. So we're going to try and dive into that data a little bit more and and see if it can teach us something new about uh, storms. Now, I'm curious, uh, how much does the uh, Doppler on wheels cost? And, of course, the follow-up is that why don't you just build one? I mean, it doesn't (laughs) look that hard. Well, it's a a very custom uh, piece of machinery, and um, I I believe the cost is somewhere around a million dollars. 
for for the truck and the radar itself. And um, uh, especially over these past three weeks, we've certainly talked about that uh, mm-hmm. about getting one of our own. So uh, I think that that's something that could could really benefit Hawaii is to have uh, these type of mobile radars um, and maybe even possibly this uh, new technology that Wen Chao was talking about, this phased array uh, technology. So that's something we're going to pursue because I think uh, th- that type of data could um, could provide some real insights and some real value to the people of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Lee, um, for those of us not fortunate enough to have Doppler on wheels parked in our garage, or for, if you're a, if you're a home weather person, if you're if you're the next Justin Fujioka, I mean, where, where would you direct people to get more immersed in this technology to learn more about it, or perhaps maybe just to see the prettiest pictures that uh, you're able to get? Uh, you can visit uh, Doppler on Wheels uh, website, which is the uh, Center for Severe Weather Research. I believe their website is www.csrr.org. So they uh, you can you can find all the information about uh, CSWR and it's uh, it's a uh, uh, founder uh, Josh Warman, which you may s- see him and his uh, uh, colleagues in uh, Discover Channel and National mm-hmm. Geographic mm-hmm. about storm mm-hmm. chasing, and on their website they have uh, uh, information about uh, the three. Uh, Doppler on wheel units, they uh, currently operate uh, with a different technology and capability and also uh, many beautiful pictures uh, about severe storms. Yeah. And, uh, and Michael, where can somebody find out more about uh, Doppler on wheels in terms of your class and, and how uh, they're, they're uh, using the data that they have uh, collected? Well, we do have a website uh, on the uh, SOEST webpage. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a kind of a long website, so uh, I well, won't. Uh, but you can certainly email search. Email it to me, yeah. and I'll put it up on our. Yes, yeah, so you can search for SOEST and the Hero website. Another uh, good resource uh, that's also associated with this is the National Science Foundation's Lower Atmospheric Observing Facilities, mm-hmm. and they maintain all of the different uh, radars and aircraft. Um, and so, if you're interested in other types of uh, really advanced weather equipment, uh, that's a good place to look. All right, sounds good. I'm c- I can't wait to see our own little Doppler on wheels driving around. That'd be kind of <laughs> exciting. Anyway, Michael Bell is uh, an assistant. Assistant professor over at SOAS, and Mike, uh, I mean, uh, Wen Chao Li is a senior scientist from the National Center for Atmospheric Research. We want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you very much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Yes, glad to be here. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll answer your questions about implementing your very own WordPress website. And if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. Or, of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chung, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Silver Furs and a song called Motherland. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.